Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am welcomed again by Brad Schoenfeld, who hasn't been on the show for a while, but had a fantastic episode that was incredibly well received many months ago. And today we are going to be talking to Brad's favorite subject, hypertrophy. He is the muscle hypertrophy expert, has done tons of research in the area, has fantastic books, and uh, I can't thank him enough, and you guys I'm sure can't either. And I really want to delve into something that Brad recently released over social media. Everyone knows these infographics we're seeing um, that try and simplify points. And Brad did his own great job at this and has been. And these were quite well received. And we just wanted to delve into these a little bit further. Um, A quote I wanted to bring up initially that Brad made was that the majority of maximizing muscle growth, perhaps as much as 70%, is obtained from simply training hard and eating right. The other 30% is what separates good physiques from great ones. And this is what most of the listeners are probably looking for, that 30%, uh, because a lot of people won't be listening in who are just interested in getting a great physique. They kind of want even better. Um, So that's what we want to delve into if you're happy to do that, Brad. Yeah, sure. I I mean, you basically summarized what I said very nicely in that uh, if you just get to the gym and you are consistent, you lift weights, even people that use roughly poor form, what I would consider poor form, and have uh, very little concept of program design. They're either doing the same thing like every time and uh, not necessarily exercises that might uh, maximize the growth in all the muscles, but, uh, you know, more single joint stuff, whatever. Um, You you can make uh, substantial gains. And, and of course, eating right – when I say eating right, that's primarily protein intake, taking in sufficient protein to support growth. The other two, it's protein and calories. Uh, having, if you're going to be very low in calories, it's also going to be very difficult. So uh, that would be really the two primary factors. The carbohydrate and fat intake would be much less uh, of any consequence. And yeah, you can get uh, substantial gains. Uh, and I would say putting it in a percentage, which is always somewhat difficult. But yeah, 70, 75% of gains probably are just showing up on a regular basis and getting in sufficient protein and calories. And obviously, there's so much that goes into those two aspects that the listeners will realize and um, many people should realize like the whole, I mean, recoveries within there and then there's nutritional timing within there that could have a role and all these various aspects. What I do want to ask is when we are talking about training hard, do you have kind of a definition of what that might look like? Is that relative intensity for you? So, so that would be intensity of effort. That basically that means that if you're lifting like they're doing the Tracy Anderson workout where you're lifting two pound dumbbells, that's not going to cut it. So you need to be not necessarily going to failure, but you need to be lifting. You need to be challenging your muscles. You need to be lifting close to failure. To use the uh, the scale that my colleague uh, Eric Helms devised. Uh, by the way, my doggies are kind of going crazy in the background, so if you learn stuff. They're enjoying the chat. Uh, two, my two babies. Uh, but Eric Helms had repetitions uh, in reserve, basically how many reps before failure. And to me, that would be probably somewhere to – this would also depend somewhat on what rep range you're training in. So I, if you're training in a rep range of three and you're only doing a single – might not be enough. But anyway, with your moderate rep range is the so-called hypertrophy rep range, 6 to 12 reps or so. Uh, if you're at a rep uh, RIR of 2 to maybe even 3, uh, that would be sufficient. 
<laughs> so would you say three reps in reserve would be where your cap is in terms of people going kind of hard enough when you're in that kind of hypertrophy rep hesitate to have hard caps uh so i think that if you're always training with an rir of three you're probably also not going to max you'd be somewhat short but you, you want to approximate failure i'd say at least some of those sets should be towards the one there's no right answer there and when i start giving hard cutoffs people take it that literally and there really is no way to to really quantify that mm -hmm. so i would just say somewhere you're training within an rir of zero to three and how that comes out but basically you need to be what it comes down to is challenging your muscles beyond their present capacity uh, and then there's going to be nuances within that but but again just to clarify this too that is only getting you so that's a majority of the mass that you can uh, acquire. But if you're uh, certainly if you want more than that, if you're your average stockbroker or insurance saleswoman and you just want some nice muscle, et cetera, yeah, you don't need to uh, doing the nuances are, are not going to have really meaningful effects, substantially meaningful effects. If you're a dude or, or a gal that wants to maximize their muscle mass, the nuances are going to be huge. So the, what you were talking about before, the manipulation of program variables, the uh, um, somewhat nutri nutrient time to some extent, how the protein, let's say, is spread out uh, throughout the day in particular, uh, recovery. I know when I put that out, a lot of people got all bent out of shape in recovery. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have zero sleep, I mean, again, there, people start reducing this to ridiculous absurdisms. Uh, so people would say, well, if you get no sleep, well, of course, it's if you're getting the difference here again, that would be like if you're getting no nutrients whatsoever, if you just are starving, you know, or, or no training whatsoever. So again, it, it gets to be, it, hopefully when these infographics go out, people should take them with the concept that you're, you're getting some sleep. And to my, uh, to what I have seen through the literature and through personal experience, if you're getting even people that get, that are sleep, fairly sleep deprived, they're getting four or five hours a day still can be get a lot of their gains. Now they again might not be they won't be maximizing their gains. So yeah, I would say that generally more getting your seven, eight hours a day is is more ideal if you're looking for maximal gains. But you're not gonna get no gains if you're sleeping five hours a day and you're doing what I if you're getting if you're training hard and getting good nutrition, you will get 75% of your gains, even with a somewhat of a sleep-deprived state. And I can see that with high, a high degree of confidence. No, perfect. And I, I think it would be interesting for me to ask, actually, I know kind of our audience are most, mostly natural trainees, uh, but often we look towards for hypertrophy, the biggest guys who are obviously normally on um, performance-enhancing drugs that can dramatically change their ability to recover from things. Um, when we're thinking about failure training, we often see those big guys kind of go into failure quite often. Do you think maybe for the listeners, do you think that's probably a, not the right way for them to go? Do you think probably leaving some reps in reserve the majority of the time is probably more beneficial for them? So the concept of training to failure is I actually just did a, uh, an article for I have a column on bodybuilding.com and just did an article about that. And it's uh, somewhat of a murky topic. We'd like to think that all these things have been really well studied. Uh, they haven't. Certainly, this is a topic that has been poorly studied. And then it starts coming down. So what are you comparing? Are you comparing training to failure versus an IR of one versus an IR of two? What rep range are you comparing that in? Um, I, we just had a, a paper that's currently in review 
that looks at the topic with different rep ranges, and the rep range is going to have certain effects on that. Uh, and we used untrained subjects in that study, so it only can tell you so much. What I would extrapolate just from where anecdote comes in, so what I always say is that an evidence-based approach, you look to the literature, but the literature is never going to tell you what to do. It's never going to completely answer your questions. It's going to provide guidelines, and especially on a topic like this, like training to failure, where there's so many nuances involved. Um, I do think that some training to failure can be potentially beneficial. How much of a difference is that going to make? My take would be that if you're a competitive bodybuilder like yourself or, or someone that just wants to get maximum jacked, that that might eke out a little extra gains. But I think also that if for 98% of gains or the vast majority of gains, that probably a certainly 95, I would say with a high degree of confidence, 95 plus uh, percentage of gains, that uh, if you get an RIR of one where you leave one in the tank, that you will get just as much as you will if your training in that vein in the side of your temple is, is writhing like a snake. No, amazing. And um, I think that's a good takeaway for people because when we are talking about these things, there's always, it's like a sliding scale. It's not like a, a bit doesn't provide anything and then the more doesn't just provide incrementally more and more benefit. So I think that's important for the listeners to take away. If they aren't someone who, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a stress relief for a lot of people who are listening like, oh, I don't have to go to places that are potentially even could create injury or go to places that are just really uncomfortable for a certain person. Um, and we've seen this with volume, I guess, as well. I, I should also add that uh, that does not mean that every, even failure, it's, it's context dependent in terms of how often, in how often not only within the training session itself, but over the course of the training cycle, if you will. And uh, my take on that would be that uh, it really needs to be selective. Doing training to failure on every set, if anything, could hamper gains. Uh, so like the last set uh, would be a target to really take your muscles to failure. That was the strategy that Dorian Yates uh, used mm -hmm. effectively. Um, and I would also say that uh, training with single joint exercises, it's more relevant to use the training to failure on single joint exercises, whereas, let's say, squats, not only is there a higher percentage for of a, a higher risk of injury, higher percentage risk of injury, but also it's uh, exceedingly demanding on the body to do a squat to failure. It just takes a lot out of you and that can affect the volume that you end up doing in the rest of the workout. So trying to save your failure to your single joint moves, perhaps your machine-based moves, even with multi-joint, looking at it more from a machine standpoint, at least from an injury standpoint, that would uh, reduce that risk. So th those are, again, other considerations. It's Most of these topics are highly nuanced, yep. and giving a, a cookie-cutter answer would only be uh, – would not be doing justice to the topic. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree, and I think it's something – it's, I think for most of the listeners who are well-educated and they've listened to the podcast before, they've seen lots of your work already, they should probably have a, this, a fairly logical reasoning you can come out with which, which exercises make sense that could be failure, could be safe, and which exercises to definitely avoid it on and kind of think about technical failure and all of those aspects. So um, no, I think that's incredibly important ways to say how nuanced it is, context-dependent. Um, and on the same sort of ilk of talking about like pushing things to the limit, um, something that a few people have talked about is this kind of overreaching and this supercompensation. And obviously we've seen this throughout some other areas within sports, 
but not so much muscle growth and bodybuilding. Is this something that you are thinking is favorable for bodybuilders, especially those seeking maximal muscle growth, or do you think it's not something that we should go towards? No, I absolutely do. I've, I've written about that. I've actually, my books uh, discuss this. Um, and I, I've used that concept not only uh, in, in my own training, but also when I've, I've worked with a lot of high-level bodybuilders, physique athletes, and have had very good success with it. Um, generally, my approach is to push use increased frequency to increase volume over time. So basically look to a supercompensation phase. Volume is a primary driver of hypertrophy. Uh, it's been well documented. And what I look to do generally is to push uh, more volume by increasing the frequency over a period of time. So I might go from a three-day-a-week uh, training approach to a four-day-a-week, uh, let's say three-day-a-week total body, four-day-a-week upper-lower split to a six-day-a-week uh, multi-level split. Uh, and that would be uh, more where you're looking to peak for a given point, and then you go back and you you go through the cycle again. And uh, that, what you look to do is to have a super compensatory response in that final phase. You're put, I kind of liken it to approaching a cliff where you're going towards the edge of that cliff without going over. If you just keep training high volume, high volume, high volume, you're going to end up going over that cliff. Mm -hmm. And that's the overtraining. Uh, if you want to use the analogy, overtraining is over the cliff. Or, or not, some people call it non-functional overreaching because with resistance training, uh, the overtraining, overtraining actually was a endurance-based concept that's been applied to uh, resistance training, and how that manifests can be different. Still not clear in terms of the types of um, symptoms you experience, but regardless of what it is, you're going to have performance decrements and, and hamper your your uh, not only recovery but also your accretion of lean mass. So yeah, so my uh, concept is to have these cycles of training, training blocks that uh, push towards a supercompensatory response and then repeat the cycle. And, you, and they're also staggered with deloads so that uh, with, even within these blocks, you don't overtrain as well. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, exactly. I, I can remember it quite well in the max muscle plan, kind of the, the blocks you're describing with the deloads and then increasing frequency throughout until a point where obviously you then repeat drawback volume and you incrementally accumulate and build it up again um, and I found success with that myself and with my clients and it will be great to see it kind of come more out within the research I guess it's a longer term studies that you kind of require and the, the population is quite difficult to get hold of. <laughs> That's exactly it so the problem so as much as I'd love to study this uh, the time commitment, the time frame to actually see this in practice where you're not, because the idea is to uh, not see an overtrained response. And where is that going to come? You know, you're going to need a longer period of time. So if someone trained, certainly I would say 16 weeks straight, we're training a lot of failure training with, uh, with higher volumes, then you're going to start to see this. But it's hard to get in a college environment, a 16-week study. So then if you can do an eight-week study, it's probably not enough to be done tons of them. Generally, we don't start seeing uh, those overtraining symptoms manifest in that period of time. Or if we do, they're not apparent. We'd have to have a midpoint testing, and it's hard to, to fathom uh, or hard to assess whether that's actually occurring in that. Mm -hmm. No, then I guess this is exactly where kind of the anecdote and your experience has to come with the science, um, laying the foundation there first. Um, to talk more uh, to GoFundMe, oh. they can uh, we can do a GoFundMe page and maybe <laughs> get enough money. We can 
we can make that happen. I think maybe we get all the kind of the bodybuilding podcasts and all the kind of blogs out there and just all channel it one way. I actually think it probably would go pretty far. You get a couple of thousand people chipping in 10 bucks and uh, we have a study. I I mean, yeah, we should talk about that in future, actually. I actually think that could be really good. <laughs> um, so actually to talk to our next point, um, of the kind of the good nutrition, talking about calories um, and getting sufficient protein. When I think a lot of people are interested in that kind of surplus of calories and what size of a surplus and the kind of research in that area, again, is not, there's not much there. There's kind of a couple of studies that have looked at surpluses, but it's not very specific to bodybuilders. Um, what is your thoughts and what have you seen kind of work the best in that regard in terms of like size of surplus, length of time, actually gaining weight and maybe even like body fat how far to push it so the first thing that you have to realize when we talk about a surplus it's always an estimate i mean there's no way we're going to know exactly what someone's caloric needs are you're always just estimating and um even then there's going to be it's going to change so what you're estimating at one point over the course of if you're let's say you're dieting there's going to be huge changes downward just because of adaptive thermogenesis and when you're going upwards, same thing, there will be other adaptations where your, your metabolism actually will speed up some. So your body, it's the leptin uh, model. But within that, so but we can get close with that. And my general rule is to look to, within those estimates, look for about a three to 500 calorie per day surplus. Uh, it's somewhat dependent on the person, usually hard gainers I have with a higher surplus. Uh, and those who are more mesomorphic and, and able to put on mass, uh, we can do more of what they might call a clean bulk. Some people refer to it as a clean bulk, which is 300 or so. But somewhere in that range, and sometimes I've gone even a little over Again, someone's really, these are the things that we can give guidelines, and, and that's through research even through experience. But everyone is different, and I've had people go up, the need to go up to 700 plus calories, at least that, from an estimated standpoint, real hard gainers that just weren't putting on sufficient muscle. And at some point, you're going to put on muscle. <laughs> you're going to put on some fat too. But uh, those are the, uh, the things that only that we can give guidelines, but you can only uh, tweak based upon personal, based on the experience and based upon progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that, are you looking for a certain rate of weight gain or do you kind of base it upon many factors, sort of like performance, how visually they look? Obviously you do, um, but you, do you have a general idea of how much you're looking for them to gain or anything along those lines? Well, we can talk about ideals. Ideally, I'd like someone to gain, a, if you, so you're talking about an a, a trained subject, trained person, and now then you have to differentiate between if it's a highly trained bodybuilder who's a natty, mm -hmm. that's going to be different as well. But let's say your average trained guy who's going into the gym, he's uh, built up a good amount of muscle, been training for a few years. Um, generally, I'm looking to put on about a pound of muscle a month, can be a little more, but a good rate of gain is about a quarter pound per, per week. Uh, if we can get it up to two pounds per month, that's very good. And certainly, that's very do that's doable with some people. But on average, we're generally looking at a pound, maybe a little more, pound and a, pound and a half per month in a trained subject. Uh, for someone who is very well trained, uh, well trained bodybuilder who's natty, we might be looking at a couple of pounds over a three month period would be a very good uh, result. 
And is that um, a pound of muscle? So you including, not including the fat that might come along with that, or is that actual? That's the, yeah, no, no, no. That, that's, we're not talking about, about body weight. We're talking about muscle. Yeah. And then um, there's intracellular muscle water that can become oil. So again, it depends on your mode of measurement. Um, generally, I have very sophisticated measures at my my lab, my research lab, but when we're looking in the field, you're generally doing uh, body comp measures like skin fold, where you're doing a crude estimate just of lean mass versus fat mass, and you're assuming that your lean mass is muscle, which is not necessarily because there can be water weight associated with it. So these are some of the uh, tribulations that when you're, you're looking to try to gauge progress, but the astute professional will take those things into account, and then your eye is going to tell you as well to some extent. Uh, that can be blurred somewhat by you. So my, my goal generally, you're going to gain a little bit of body fat when you're doing, when you're in a surplus. The idea is to somewhat minimize. You don't want to, you can do a dirty bulk. You do like the Lee Priest bulk yeah. where you're five foot four and 300 pounds and then you shred down. But especially if you're natty, uh, you're going to end up losing a ton of muscle. It's just not worth the, it's very taxing on your body, first of all, to carry that much weight uh, and fat, not healthy. Uh, and you generally will end up losing more. I, I found that it's to have a smaller muscle gain, but also smaller fat mass, you end up, your net is better overall in that respect than if you just gained a ton of weight and you also gained more muscle, then you had to lose all that fat to, yeah. to trim down. No, I think it's important for the listeners to realize that I think a lot of them try and gain at the rate limiting, kind of the ideal rate limiting uh, muscle growth gain so that pound a month for like that intermediate and I think sometimes they end up holding themselves back a little bit um, not providing that kind of the 500 calorie surplus which could equate to about a pound a week on the scale um, so I think that's important to kind of tell them yeah and I think it's right it's also important that uh, so you, you want to go the other way and say well obviously everyone wants to get shredded and get jacked at the same time and um, I will tell you that research from my lab clearly shows, I see it all the time, where you can re, uh, have recomposition of, of your body. But it's not like you're, the amount of muscle that you gain is substantially less than you do if you have a surplus. And, and it, it depends on the person and their training level. Like The more well-trained you are and also the less fat you have to lose, the harder that is, the harder and harder. So if you're already, let's say you're 10% body fat now, and you've been training for hard for three or four years, whatever it is, your ability to put on muscle will be very small. If you can, while you're cutting, your ability to put on muscle while you're cutting. So if you're, and then you need to cut very slowly. So it starts to be a self-defeating proposition to try to do that. You're better off trying to just add in a little body fat, not, not a ton, but some body fat. You'll gain a little fat, gain muscle, and then you work on maintaining the muscle while you're, you're cutting. Mm -hmm. No, I think especially for more advanced trainees, that kind of specificity of nutritional input is so important. Um, people all the time end up kind of, I think that's what holds a lot of intermediate kind of trainees back. They just don't realize the importance of nutrition and getting that right. Um, so no, I think that's excellent. And in terms of where you like to keep, say, a bodybuilder, a competitive bodybuilder's body fat, do you have a range for a male that you'd like to keep them within, like, so you don't push too far? Because I... I don't know if you have experience with maybe pushing a bit higher, maybe performance and the ability to use more load increases. Uh, what are your thoughts there, Brad? Yeah, generally I don't like a bodybuilder to be over around 20% body fat. 
Um, and then it, that would be so would depend upon when their show is. That's that's even where that's when their show is way out. Uh, to me, you don't want to have to be losing fat at a fast clip because that's when you start to see uh, uh, muscle loss associated with it. So you'd have to specify at what point in the training. You know, I, I like to have people, a bodybuilder, within a few pounds, uh, three or four pounds within uh, six, roughly six weeks out. They should be uh, within a, you know, three, four pounds of their goal weight. Uh, and, and when I say weight, that would be that would include muscle and fat. So you're going to be just shredding at that point. And there's going to be some water loss, but while maintaining muscle. So do the math. You know, you're. Uh, you're not going to be able to have be to really bulk a lot now. If you're telling me you don't want not doing a show for two years, yeah, then you can even go a little bit higher. But most that's not the case with most bodybuilders. If you're talking about a bodybuilder, usually they're competing within the year at least once, not multiple times. And that's where you then it would depend upon how close they are to their show, how many times they're competing. I wouldn't let them be at 20% if they have a show and if they're doing four shows a year. You know, let's say you spread out and they're three you know, four or five months away then you want to be more towards that 12 13 14 percent assuming your target to me you're a good if you're in peak condition a bodybuilder should be five six percent body fat at least by the methods that we have whether how accurately that actually is from dissection we don't know but the the methods that we have of set of assessment would say roughly five to six percent that ideal would be in that realm so you know, it's uh, it, cutting fat should be a fairly slow process uh, if you're looking to maintain muscle in a high-level bodybuilding. Yeah, no, definitely, and I guess that it might be the more novice trainees or the kind of junior team competitors who maybe competed early, then they can push their body weight up a bit more and that they kind of need to because they want to come to stage again heavier next time. So yeah, that makes much that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I would, if it's someone like that, then you'd probably recommend, hey, don't do a show for a year or whatever and spend some time just putting on some mass. Uh, those are all the things that, those are the nuances that we talked about that you can't, I can't give a cookie cutter for because that's where your individual, I can give you gen, uh, general guidelines as far as that goes. But everyone, the, the essence of prescription is individualization. Yes. And um, there will be, fairly large differences in how your, your approach is going to be based upon where someone's at and many, many nuances. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and then in terms of keeping someone a bit leaner, do you ever implement things like the mini cuts? I don't know if you've heard of that term, like shorter fat loss periods. Do you utilize those in your own kind of like programming for those bodybuilders? I don't. I know well, my, my good buddy Mike Israel has uh, talked about those uh, a lot. I, I haven't personally, but I'm not, it's not that I'm against doing it. It's just not something I've implemented. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting concept. Uh, whether it uh, is more beneficial or not, I can't say because I've not used it. Okay, perfect. No, that's fine. Um, so it, we've covered kind of the hard training aspect. We've kind of covered the proper nutritional aspects. We've covered the surplus um, and protein, which I think a lot of the listeners are aware of. When we're talking about everything else, is there anything within that you think a lot of people who are seeking hypertrophy just get wrong a lot of the time and they maybe place too much emphasis on other things that don't matter as much? Yeah, I mean, things like slamming a protein shake the second they're out of the gym. Like, people do get caught up a lot in the bro, 
bro science. Now, when we talk about bro science, I know a lot of bros get offended when, by that term. I'm a bro. You know, I, I started out my career reading, devouring Joe Weider magazines, uh, Muscle Fitness, Flex, and things like Muscle Development and Iron Man, all the rags back in the 90s. Um, so it's not a derogatory term in that respect, but it's the what I'm getting at here is they're listening to the new the um, the micromanaging that a bodybuilder will do. And, and look for a bodybuilder slamming a shake is a, probably a good idea. As much as I've uh, done all this talk about nutrient timing, I can't say that you might not be able to eke out a, a little more gains. But again, that it's that's window dressing. That's the icing on the cake, and people are. What you're talking about, the, the people that you're referring to are forgetting about the cake. They're forgetting about, you know, the, when you look at the frosting, that, that's really the, the end aspect of it that you worry about when you're, when you're at the level of a high-level high competitor bodybuilder or physique athlete. So, yeah, so things like uh, I mean, fasted cardio for fat loss, these are all like kind of buzz terms that get latched onto, and people forget about the hardcore stuff like good program design. So th that's where you're proper looking to get that 25 30%, the proper manipulation of program variables, doing things like uh, pushing the body over time towards a super compensatory response, uh, getting the proper exercise rotations in so that you're working the muscles from proper angles. Uh, the guys that just say squat, deadlift, and, and bench press, well, if you're a powerlifter, that's great. If you want to mag, that's one of the big things that separates bodybuilders from powerlifters. If you look at their physiques, they're not symmetrically developed the power lifter uh, unless they're adding in unless the ones that are or some actually that do add in that want to they're power builders if you yeah. will but that's where adding in the supplementary exercise focusing on the development of the different heads of the muscles and even within certain muscles there's actually uh, some good evidence that muscles are innervated in, in a compartmental basis so that w within the muscle itself you can um, get activate certain aspects individually. So, so these are all, I think, things that should be focused on to a much greater extent than the, you know, that, that icing that I talked about. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, definitely. And I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about the, um, the importance of having different variants of maybe exercises, angles, that sort of thing. And Reggie recently had a roundtable on the podcast um, with Mena Henselman, Mike Isretel and uh, Eric Helms talking about kind of exercise variation, where that lies. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how you vary things, how often you do and whether you kind of have any core movements that you never change. Uh, what's your approach to that generally for like a bodybuilder who maybe doesn't need to always squat bench deadlift because there are no exercises they have to do to grow their physique. Yeah, so it's somewhat – I don't have a set uh, program in that respect that is the exact same thing for everyone. But the, the general guidelines that I use that I, I do like to have movements that are more complex, I like to keep in more frequently. Uh, so I like to have a fairly set rotation like a squat – I'm not going to have someone do a squat once a month because it's just it's inefficient. They're not going to their squatting technique is going to end up suffering because that's a move that requires a lot of repetitive use to, to maintain a good good form and, and a good connection in terms of of your recruitment patterns and your coordination. 
whereas I will put, I will vary more frequently, like single joint movements, uh, machine type movements a lot. Even like a leg press can be varied more frequently. Um, how often that's done? I mean, I don't go crazy with um, uh, with rotating exercises. Uh, again, I like to have a certain stability within a routine over the course of a month or so. But within that month, I, certainly from on a week to week basis, I'll vary some of the. Uh, single joint moves. I might do um, like a cable fly, and, and some of them will be kind of nuances. So you might do a cable fly one week for the chest, and a, a dumbbell fly the next week for the chest. So you're you're keeping in. I look at hitting the muscles from all the various angles and using various techniques. I have a whole way beyond what we can cover here, but I have a whole seminar that I do on uh, exercise selection. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at, let's say, given muscles, let's say the chest muscle, well, you can work the, you can target the upper and lower aspects of the chest through incline, uh, flat, and even through decline to even getting the uh, sternal head of the pectoral, certain other fibers in. Then you can also look at single joint exercises for the pecs, so you're, you're looking at your fly movements. And then you can look at different modalities of training, such as cables versus barbells versus dumbbells. So I like to try to, and they will all change the recruitment patterns. So with that said, I will, again, try to keep certain, like a dumbbell exercise for the chest, if that's going to be in that person's rotation. Part of that then will depend on preference. Yeah. So do I give a barbell bench press to everyone? No. I Personally, I haven't done barbell bench press in five years. It just doesn't sit well on my shoulders. I feel my, my shoulders get sore from that exercise. So I like the dumbbell chest press. If that's going to be that, that's a very complex move that it requires even more coordination than a barbell bench press. I'm going to keep that in the rotation a lot more frequently. Whereas a fly can be rotated more, and especially if you're looking at a pec deck, I can have that in once a month as a rotation exercise, and there's going to be I can do a pec deck once a year and not have any decrement in my performance. Mm -hmm. So, it, really, that's kind of the essence of it, and then it does get individualized. In my books, that's one of the things that I try to impart that I can only give a um, what I look to do is to give a training template, and within that, so I give all sorts of suggestions for exercises. How they actually put it together needs to come down to preference, and then a bunch of the other things that I talked about. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes really good sense, as because I mean some exercises are inherently more complex, and you only really get good at them after a number of weeks. So if you're then going to pull it out once you've just got good, it doesn't really make sense. Whereas a machine, for the most part, you just kind of sit in it and you can do it. Um, and I guess. I, this is why I, more advanced trainees, maybe you see them switching things more frequently because I guess they have that skill component down. They kind of know how to do the squat. So if they do did not do it for a period of time, they can come back to it and still perform quite well. Exactly. The bodybuilder, I'll generally look to, uh, to have somewhat more uh, variation in their routine. Now, but again, with a squat, if they're going to have a squat, and a squat doesn't – there's no exercise contrary to what some people – Propose. I don't believe there's any exercise that has to be in anyone's routine. So the thought that you have to squat is silly. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to do obviously leg exercises that work the hip uh, hip muscles, uh, quads. Uh, but certainly there's nothing that says a squat. Uh, you, there's plenty of bodybuilders, uh, pro bodybuilders that have built very good legs that don't squat. Um, so, but if you're going to have a squat and a rotation, even a very high-level bodybuilder, I would not advise them to do that once a month. If they want to do it once a month, I'd say just take the squat out because it's 
high risk of injury potential and a, uh, a low return factor because you're, you're still going to lose some neural components of that. Their, their squat will look better than a intermediate, and certainly yeah. not less over time. But generally speaking, they will, especially if they're pushing the weights a little, uh, it's not going to be pretty uh, if, they're, if they haven't squatted in a long time. And on that note, actually, of kind of pushing heavy loads, with the deadlift, this is kind of like, it's always, even for powerlifters, like the joker in the deck of the three lifts because it's just so fatiguing. For a, a bodybuilder, sorry, do you use deadlifts off the floor extensively like a conventional sumo or do you more so go towards other hip hinge movements to kind of develop the posterior chain and maybe the back? I generally do not put deadlifts. Uh, so depending upon how I'm structuring a program, I will, if I have a strength cycle, which often I do, depends on the bodybuilder, but I will put deads within a strength cycle. Yeah. Uh, and then I, the routine is structured more for specifically for pushing a lot of weight and developing max strength. You're going to get some hypertrophy potentially, but usually the volume's lower, so that's not really the focus there. In a bodybuilding routine, a bodybuilding cycle, I generally do not use deadlifts. Uh, they're extremely, like you said, demanding, number one. Uh, they also have a higher risk for potential for injury, especially as bodybuilders are going to start usually within that phase to diet more uh, and getting down. So I, I generally look to and, – and the it also involves so many muscle groups, so trying to structure it in a routine that can impair recovery depending upon where it's – Put in. So I'll use more like a stiff-legged deadlift, a uh, pull-throughs, good mornings uh, as a more, more single-joint uh, hip, hip hinge movement. No, yeah, perfect. And I, I mean, out of personal experience, when I was weaker, I could get away with it for the hypertrophy work. But as I've got stronger, it kind of just impedes everything else by quite a degree. So uh, removing it has just allowed, I mean, me to feel much more fresh for things like bent over rows for example which before were just almost a no-no uh because of all the kind of deadlifting so no that's very interesting and i know there's one particular exercise that you're not fond of for bodybuilders and i want to see if there's anything else that you maybe think bodybuilders may be not wanting to do too much and that's the kind of front raise obviously hitting the anterior deltoid mostly because we just get lots of anterior delt work within our program generally when we're pressing um is that is there anything else that is kind of in that kind of group of exercises where you're like mm, it, we probably get enough work there from other things we don't need to put our efforts towards that and we could spend our kind of recovery and performance capacity better in other ways so the front raise there's no exercise that i say no someone should do i just don't think i think that 98 percent of bodybuilders are not not only are they not underdeveloped in their front delts where they need that they're generally overdeveloped there because of all the other work they do so it's generally not i almost never program unless it be a specific injury that there's someone's recovering from that would require that it's just a poor return exercise um it doesn't del it doesn't uh, delve into your recovery that much because it's a single joint move but it's it's just a wasted movement and it can end up oh you can end up over developing it can cause even more overdevelopment of that muscle whereas you should be spending that time looking to balance out the, the delts and working more on your middle and, and posterior heads um, and that's the primary one that I, I think of. Uh, it's not off, off the top of my head. Um, there's ones that I just don't generally like. Uh, I think they're poor risk-reward exercises, like a behind-the-neck pull-down. Uh, I generally don't do because you, actually the activation is greater 
and they pull down to the front, and there can be impingement potentially impingement issues by the back pull down. I, I just don't think it really adds anything. Uh, so it's something I don't personally program. Is it, I, I do abide by the general rule that there's no such thing as a generally no such thing as a bad exercise yeah. only for performance of that exercise or poor use for a given person. So everything generally is on the table depending on the person, but there's some that I'm much less inclined to use. I know for me personally, like overhead pressing is something I've kind of was always including and I kind of turned my head to it and focused more on kind of incline pressing and just flat barbell pressing and used a lot more kind of isolation movements for the, the side delts. Um, is that ever something you use in your own? I do uh, use the uh, military press uh, personally and with, with uh, clients that I work with, but um, is it required? No, I, I'm working now with a very high-level bodybuilder who's going to be competing in a national pro qualifier, and um, he's not doing any of the. He's got certain shoulder issues, and it precludes doing overhead presses. And we're just focusing on single joint moves. So, uh, not again. Everything is is on or off the table, depending upon who's who the person is and what their individual needs are and abilities. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's why I love these chats with you, Brad, because, I mean, you, you bring up individualization all the time, which I think is just something people have to remember whenever they're listening to these. Um, and whenever you give out recommendations, you always give that caveat. So um, I really enjoy that. And um, something I did want to ask you actually was talking about kind of the programming variables. We know progressive overload, kind of making things harder over time is quite important. Is there any specific kind of schemes that you personally really like if people are aware of like double or triple progression or even if you've ever utilized something that Mike has obviously made a little bit more popular with adding sets, is that ever something you've considered utilizing within your own programming, Brad? Well, I, I actually mentioned it before. So first of all, progressive overload, the term load is in there. So a lot of people just assume that it means adding on weight. Yeah. That is not necessarily the case. So progressive overload, you increase volume, you are progressively overloading. And that is a primary strategy that I use. So I generally don't like to have sessions if you're, unless you're doing the uh, cell phone workout where you're chatting for 10 minutes on the phone, doing another set. I mean, that's really not the time that you're spending is really relevant there. But for people that are coming into the gym, they're doing your rest intervals of two minutes or so, 90 seconds, two minutes. Uh, and they're training through and they're training hard, anything over about an hour and 15, hour and a half really starts, what you're going to get past that, you really start to compromise what you're, you're getting. So I don't like to add more volume within sessions. So I said I like to add frequency, which is a form of overload, and thus more volume. So you then restructure your routine uh, around that. So that is a primary uh, overload concept that I like to use. I also like to push failure a little, uh, especially within the, an overreaching block where you start doing more failure towards the end of, let's say, let's say that way you're doing a one month, six day a week uh, block. Maybe that last week, every set will be carried out or, or almost every set. Certainly all the single joint exercises. I'm kind of, I, these are things that I vary again, depending upon the skill of the individual. So a very high level bodybuilder they're going to be very close to their genetic ceiling, and that's where you're going to try pushing them more, and their generally recovery is generally going to be better, whereas if it's more intermediate, even low-level advanced, those are going to be mitigated. So, so these are all strategies that I use as far as pushing or progressively overloading weight. Uh, certainly, I do look to keep, I think, 
trying to uh, increase weight within a given rep range is an important uh, factor. And that's why I like to have the strength cycle uh, generally within a hypertrophy uh, goal when programming is hypertrophy, having some type of strength cycle, which will then allow you to use heavier loads in your hypertrophy routine. Mm -hmm. But how that plays out is just very variable. No, perfect. And I'm glad you brought up the load element because I think a lot of people do end up chasing the load. And whilst I guess that's very important for strength sports, for powerlifting, for a bodybuilder, you've shown various times that there's many ways to progress and load certainly isn't the only one you can play with. Yeah. And by the way, so this is where going back to your first question about getting 70, 75% of your results, that's where the, so the new one, yeah. we're, we're discussing all the things that are really important to get you to that next level and, and really to reach your ultimate potential or at least to approach it. Whereas for, for the average Jane or Joe, or Joe who's a stockbroker, insurance saleswoman, whatever it is, um, these things are, so you, you can use a very simple routine to get that 70, 75%. People will kind of, you know, there's some researchers even that kind of poo-poo, well, you don't need these complex routines. You do need to get a lot more complex to maximize your potential. And anyone that doesn't believe that, I think is just, has never really trained high-level athletes and, mm -hmm. and high-level bodybuilders, et cetera. Uh, so there's, unfortunately, there are a lot of researchers who go right from their, they go from their college to their master's to their PhD, and they've never entrenched themselves in the field. They're very good researchers, per se. They carry out studies well, but their understanding of, of the human body, they're doing studies in untrained subjects, trying to extrapolate some of these findings to high-level bodybuilders. It just doesn't, the, the generalization is not there. Mm -hmm. And if you've got time, I have one more question, if I can throw that at you. Um, that is to do with kind of, your thoughts on the hypertrophy pathways. Obviously, you released your paper many years ago with the three hypertrophic pathways, um, and there's been some thoughts that maybe it's just mechanical tension that's driving everything. And so, plug up here because he is—he uh, keeps nipping at my heels. Oh no! <laughs> he wants to get involved. So yeah, so you're, keep going with the mechanical tension, right? So yeah, it was basically, um, there's some thought that maybe it's just mechanical tension, that the other hypertrophy pathways that you kind of theorized aren't actually important. What are your thoughts on that? Are you still um, for kind of metabolic damage and uh, me metabolic stress metabolic even? <laughs> uh, metabolic damage. stress, muscle damage. Um, yeah, so people can have, there's... There's certain people, anyone that's saying that it's just mechanical tension, they're entitled to their opinion, but that's an opinion. And it's not, it can be a knowledgeable opinion per se, but there's certainly good evidence, as I've uh, pr uh, proposed and I've written review papers on. We actually have uh, collaborated with some really high level uh, exercise scientists and physiologists. Uh, it's kind of, I would say, somewhat of an update to. Uh, my paper to my 2010 paper that looks at all the, we're basically looking at the three uh, proposed factors, uh, mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and um, muscle damage. And we go through what the, the cases are for each one and what the, uh, what the limitations are. And certainly there's a lot of limitations in trying to extrapolate research because when you, let's say muscle damage, when you try to isolate muscle damage, you're going to there's going to be confounding factors that other factors will come in. 
Um, my dog is snoring now. <laughs> and uh, so bottom line is that uh, no one knows this, but I think there is a strong rationale or certainly a good rationale to say that it's not just mechanical tension. But when we look at the sensors, how um, forces are, uh, are mechanically, uh, mechanochemically induced to, uh, to ultimately carry out protein synthesis, uh, there, there's many confounding issues that I think it's going to be a long time before we're able to really isolate these things and have a conclusive uh, understanding of them. But I do think at this point, we, there is enough good evidence to say that it is more than just the forces acting and that there are other factors that come into play. Amazing. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time, Brad. Really appreciate it. Um, that's everything I have for you right now. And uh, I just want to, if you've got anything coming out that you want to let the listeners know about, whether you've got any kind of seminars coming up or any kind of new books or research that might be of interest to people. I have seminars virtually every month. I mean, I'm in... Uh, Amazing. I'm in... Uh, where am I? I'm in Chile next week. I'm in, um, by the time this comes out, I'm probably already done my Chile uh, <laughs> seminar, but then I'm in Slovenia at the end of this month, at the end of June. And yeah, I have a ton of you. They can just follow me on social media. I always uh, list those things. I have my books that are available. I have do a lot of social media work, uh, free stuff. I'm, I try to put out, I'm an educator, so I try to put out free content and educate. That's my job. And uh, anyone who is looking, we're, we just got approval for a master's program at Lehman College in the Bronx. So uh, that should be starting fall 2019. If anyone wants to pursue higher level education in exercise science uh, and you're a good student and uh, passionate about muscle strength and hypertrophy, let me know. It's in human performance is the, uh, the focus of the master's. So. Amazing. And I guess, yeah, if I had any recommendations for the listeners, definitely follow Brad on Facebook. Uh, of all the kind of professionals that I follow over there, Brad is by far the one sharing so, so much value. The research, his own interpretations, responding to the comments is fantastic. And I know you're doing more work on Instagram and everywhere as well. Um, but yeah, Facebook is probably my favorite place to follow Brad. And all of that will be linked in the description box below. So you can go and follow him straight away. Terrific, Steve. Awesome. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks again to Brad and we'll catch you soon.